Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a talented multi-hyphenate in the world of horror whose work continues to shine a light on the genre he loves. As a filmmaker, he's crafted such celebrated shorts as Panty Kill, Mime After Midnight, and Pervula. As an author, he's written several fright-filled novels, including Hoarders and Turkey Day. He's a DJ, a midnight movie host, and so much more. Please welcome to the show, Armando Munoz. Thank you for having me, Michael. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to have you on uh, because as we were talking before the show began, uh, when I look across the history of things that you've been involved in and the things you've done, you've just had your fingers in so many different pies in the world of horror that I feel like we are going to have a lot to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so why don't we just kick the show off the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this, why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. What's your relationship with horror? Why do you think people are drawn to horror? But why horror? I think it's, uh, two instigating incidents. Okay. That are, um, disconnected, but I think they're both important to tell the story on how I became so into the genre Mm -hmm. or obsessed with it or just in my blood. But the first was a somewhat traumatic experience I had as a child. Oh, no. Um, But one that I was uh, totally responsible for. I happened to go see the original Friday the 13th on opening night in the theater when I was eight years old. And And they let you in? Well, um, I had my babysitter with me. Oh, she was old enough to get me in. And my parents knew. In fact, my mom drove us there. You know, she was getting me out of the house. She didn't care what I watched. So that was fine. But at eight years old, I was not mature enough to process a film like that. In fact, to my knowledge, it's my first R-rated movie. And it was the first horror film I believe I ever saw in its entirety. Wow. Um, Even the television, you know, late night creature features, uh, John Stanley, I could barely even watch the intro to his show. Like I was so terrified to see the blood on Christopher Lee's fangs as Dracula. And yet here I am going to see Friday the 13th on opening night. And it was partly due to all of the hype. There was such even a film like that in elementary school, there was a schoolyard hype leading up to that movie. And I thought, oh, I'm going to be a brave kid and I'm going to go see it opening night. Oh, no, I was not ready for it at all. Absolutely not. And it gave me nightmares for years and not just Friday the 13th, but even the trailer that ran before it for The Shining, that terrifying teaser with the elevators that open up and the blood rushes out. Right. Just all of that was so nightmarish to me. Like I just couldn't process fantasy from reality. I knew movies weren't real, but still I was just too young. And Friday the 13th really did a number on me. Um, And it just, everything about it burned itself. I think into my psyche, the structure, the, um, the sadness of these beautiful young people losing their lives. So tragically and suddenly, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. And at the end of the movie, when Jason jumped out of the lake, I, screamed and I threw my soda and red vines in the air and I bolted screaming up the center aisle out of the auditorium and everybody laughed at me and it was totally (laughs) humiliating and terrifying and yet somewhat exhilarating at the time but the truth is is I had nightmares for years uh I mean, I can understand why. I think, you know, the thing about the original Friday the 13th is it is 
very gritty. It doesn't have the studio gloss that a lot of the later films have. And so, I mean, if you are going to be traumatized by a horror movie at that age anyway, that's like that's a hard one, like because it it has teeth that a, a movie that was made within a studio system in a right. larger way wouldn't have. Everything about it feels a little sleazy, a little like you're you're maybe seeing something you shouldn't, which lends itself right. to that terror. I do want to like briefly note, because I love an aside, I'm glad that you are a Red Vines enthusiast because there's something great about Red Vines at the movies that I feel like not everyone appreciates. I agree. And actually Red Vines have... um a major association to that incident when I was a kid. Literally every single time I smell red vines, I am taken back into that auditorium and that terror I felt watching Friday the 13th the first time. Red vines is the smell of Friday the 13th and summer camp slaughter to me. Oh my God. I've never lost that at all. That's amazing. Well, you know, there is something to be said about, um, smell is sensory memory because there are certain things like certain like I remember these candles that my mom would get that I always think of Halloween and they were probably just like cheap wax candles for pumpkins but that like burning wax inside the the, the pumpkin always like you know I, I think of like specific places or right. stupid grease paint Dracula costumes <laughs> that I would do um, I think that that is a wholly shocking baptism by fire into the world of horror movies yeah it's and I think my interest in creating horror films was in some ways a reaction to that. I, after years of nightmares, I had to then learn the mechanics of the job of it, of what it actually was. Right. And that started to fascinate me. And, but that was five years, about five years later. Right. Um, I had a very touchy relationship with horror in there. There were certain films I ended up going out to see and a lot of them I regretted. I remember begging my parents to let us leave early in Poltergeist because I was so terrified. I remember standing at the back of the theater during Creep Show because I was ready to bolt out at any moment again. Um, even some of the Friday sequels like three and four had me running out of the theater like it became a, a thing. I would just stand by the door. If I got too scared, I'd be out. But then getting Fangoria really changed it. But at exactly the same time, I picked up Stephen King novels. Hmm. I picked up Cujo. Like the same month, I picked up Fangoria. And literally, I became a voracious reader overnight. And the genre was just my one total focus. I'm curious, do you think that reading is really what helped you sort of reconcile maybe that terror? Because you, you know, when you were reading something, you create your own mental landscape. So then you have like some measure of control over it. Right. Do you think there's something to that or... I think so. And I think I started to learn that I did enjoy the terror of it. Right. And within my first year of reading Stephen King, I had read at least a half dozen or more of his novels and I was experimenting with other authors. It happened really fast. I became a bookworm very fast. And so I, I looked at story structure from that viewpoint and it, it even took me a year of getting into horror and Fangoria before I would go back and revisit the original Friday the 13th. I had to then cut my teeth on Evil Dead and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and even then and Dawn of the Dead. And then I was still too scared to go back to Friday the 13th. It really did a number on me. I mean, that's <laughs> interesting how something psychologically can take hold, because I would argue that uh, in terms of actual just dread, both 
Texas Chainsaw and Evil Dead are much more steeped in that kind of like yeah. terror. But there is something to be said about that one thing that like is attached to childhood fear and trauma. Uh, what I think is interesting, and, and you're not the first guest to talk about this, how many people who work in horror and are obsessed with horror sort of began their journeys by being like terrified. Like it was something they didn't necessarily want to engage with. And I, I think that there's something very fascinating. There's like two tracks that you can take. You're like, this scares me and I never want to deal with it. Or you become obsessed with it. Like you kind of like want want control over that fear. And all of a sudden that thing that you were very much running out of a movie theater with red vines flying is the thing that you can't get enough of. And there's something like delicious about that. I don't know what, what it is. Cause you even, you use the word it's exhilarating. And right. I, th I think that's very interesting. Well, I'm glad I got to take it to that point. Right. Because prior to that, I mean, I slept with stuffed animals probably a lot later than most kids my age to protect me from Mrs. Voorhees, who I thought was lurking under my bed and going to grab my ankle. And I used to have little pity parties where I'd sit in my room and cry over those poor, pretty young people who were killed so savagely. I mean, it's very interesting just how much it uh, caught hold. But now, you know, creating that feeling is what I do. <laughs> right. Uh, I love the idea of um, you having like a more like a, a, a moratorium and memoriam for the, the lost counselors of Crystal Lake. You know, it's, it's sweet. I think there's something sweet about that because so often when you watch slasher movies, there is just sort of the thing where they're treated as disposable characters, especially in that era. So to know that at least one kid out there was really bummed out, <laughs> you know, that like, you know, the value of, of the human life. That's good. You know, we need more Armandos in the world. <laughs> I recently told Russell Todd that he made me cry because oh. I cared for him so much when he died. He made me cry in Where the Boys Are because he was so beautiful. <laughs> uh, but I feel like that's a different discussion. <laughs> uh, so you talked a little bit about how there was a uh, kind of a five year evolution from you being terrified by these movies to becoming obsessed with it and how Fangoria sort of played a part and voraciously reading Stephen King played a part. I'm curious, uh, at what point once you started engaging it, do you feel like you had a moment where you're like okay this is for me and then past that when did you realize I don't just want to engage with this as a reader or a viewer but like this might be something I want to be involved in that happened pretty quickly but I can look back to prior to getting into horror and even Friday the 13th I had a heavy interest in entertainment um, fantasy mm -hmm. escapism that it provided and I was as a young child really obsessed with Star Wars and the creatures and so I could see that it was already there you know right. the big monsters are kind of a gateway to the human monsters and so I can see that I always had an interest in creating characters even as far back as I can remember I would make I would turn a shoebox into a television and draw out long film strips hmm. and draw out scenes with dialogue. And then I would time it and create my own TV guides and run these like homemade shows through. So and that goes back as like when I could start to play, you know, when I'm playing with just in my room, what 
do I want to do? And I create my own shows. Right. I mean, I can look back and see how I used to rewrite the Star Wars novels, the easy to read versions for young children. But I would start rewriting the names and everything. So I. I can see it was always there in the creation, even before Friday the 13th uh, traumatized me. <laughs> but. I, I thought I was going to get into special effects, though, at first, because, you know, as a kid in the mid 80s and you start seeing all these wonderful graphic horror films, the effects are so fascinating. And I bought Tom Savini's uh, book, makeup book and Dick Smith's makeup book. And I thought, OK, I'm going to create these creatures. But I realized makeup costs too much money. I didn't have it, but I could always have a pen and paper. Right. I could always write couldn't discovered I couldn't quite draw very well still struggling with that so you started writing fairly early then yes did you um when when did you first really start trying to create written materials that you would share with the world beyond like transcribing like star wars things did you did you submit to magazines and because I know you you did some journalism and, and and had a fanzine at one point what was the journey there yeah I guess that would be the first thing that I did that I tried to share with the public was um, a fanzine I created in my little Nevada hometown. Um, and I had one friend and we both created and edited the first issue. And then I uh, did the second issue myself and it was called The Fright Factor. And basically it was a teenage homemade Fangoria done on a typewriter, mm. but very ambitious. We went to the local library and they had an LA phone book and we just went through and looked up our favorite filmmakers. Oh, look, it's Sam Raimi's home number. And we called him up and we got an interview. It was that easy. We targeted a special effects artists, directors, actors, everybody. And so, and this was in the late eighties. And after I bought that first Fangoria in 1985, I never missed an issue since <laughs> not one. You must be excited they're coming back. I'm very excited. So doing the Fright Factor was definitely a major lead in because I got to talk to all these creators directly. And then I would, you know, write like I was trying to be Fangoria. And some of that writing makes me cringe now, but it's amazingly ambitious. And I can't believe who I got to talk to and do interviews with when I was 17. Like these major film figures who today are still very you know, relevant. Do you have a particular standout interview from that era that like above all else, just really like you can't believe it? Like there are a number of them, really. And one of the best ones was for the third issue, which never got done, got finished. I started a third issue, but I lost too much money. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all the money I saved up working theater jobs. And as a projectionist in high school, I spent on the Fright Factor and I just went broke, but I still did try and do a third issue. And one of my favorite interviews was with director Richard Stanley. And I interviewed him not long after he hardware got its um, U.S. release. And he was so fascinating, just one of the great fascinating minds out there. And I still love to listen to him and follow him, even though he's not as prolific in film. Right. There's nobody out there like Richard Stanley. No, he's definitely unique. And I really love that documentary about his uh, attempt at making the, the Island of Dr. Moreau right. and just all the studio interference. Was that the movie? The documentary is called Island of Lost Souls. Is it something to that effect? Something like that. I yeah. kind of forget the documentary. But I remember reading about that 
right after it happened in Fangoria. They covered that controversy at the time. Right. I just, I love the idea that he dressed up in a creature costume to sneak back onto his own set after he had been fired. Like that's great. The audacity and like, and, but, and that's what we admire about these guys. They're rebels, you know? Um, I really like that you began with fanzine culture because I think that for a lot of listeners who have always existed in the internet era, they don't understand kind of how crucial those kind of efforts, the world of zines and I, and, you know, to some extent, the smaller conventions before conventions became a circuit were to, to helping you connect with the world of, of this kind of stuff, because there was in the late eighties and early nineties, when you liked a certain kind of movie, and I'm sure you, you know, this, it, it sometimes felt like you were the only one. And then when you finally met someone, you were like, oh, my God, like, you know, this is. And right. And so I think there's something very special about that. Uh, when you created the zine at 17 years old, did you even really know what zines were? Or it was just something you were like, I'm going to do this because I was pretty aware of zines, um, not just film zines, but music zines. And I was into metal and all sorts of underground stuff. I was so I collected zines. I even had issues of Boiled Angel um, in my collection. I have to wonder if I still have those. (laughs) (laughs) Where um, how did you distribute yours? Was it all just through mailing lists? You know, it didn't get much distribution and I really didn't know what to do with it after I had gotten it out and so basically i took it to fangoria conventions Mm -hmm. and tried to sell it and then give it out and there was like an order sheet on the back on so you could mail order it um, with a money order but i didn't really have a way to get it out to many places a few a few local comic book shops i lost you know i lost all my money on it (laughs) but again i wouldn't change it because right of the friends you know who even today i still have through that. And one more interview that I will mention that was special, especially in hindsight, was with um, screenwriter and writer and upcoming director Mark Patrick Carducci, who was um, who became a friend during that era. And I hung out with him at a few Fangoria Weekend of Horrors, and he really encouraged my writing and my fanzine. And he gave me an interview, a great interview um, that's in the second issue. And he was working with uh, Frank Darabont on the time at the time um, on Buried Alive, uh, which I believe was Frank's first directing debut as a television movie yeah. or for a for a feature length um, movie. So he was working with great people and he directed a documentary about Ed Wood. He was total fanatic of Ed Wood's uh, Flying Saucers Over Hollywood was, I think, his one directing effort. He also did Neon Maniacs, but he um, he died uh, too, way too young in the late 1990s. And so I'm really glad I had that experience to not only interview him, but become friends with him in the process and hang out with him right. outside of conventions and actually get to know the guy. That's That was very special. Well, and you mentioned how you connected uh, with a lot of people through the Fangoria conventions of the time. Yes. And one of the things that I think is really cool about looking at your social media is you frequently post all of these photographs of conventions of yesteryear. And we get to see people who maybe aren't with us anymore. Right. And uh, when you were doing the zine, was that when you first started getting into the convention world or like, was that, was that running in parallel? Uh, and cause you've done some work at those conventions as well, right? Not really. Mm-hmm. Um, 
just interviews, I guess. Right. Um, and, I, you know, again, I was just such a fanboy. I probably would have gone even if I wasn't doing the Fright Factor. But the Fright right. Factor gave me a way to meet these people both sometimes before and sometimes after I had interviewed them. And those conventions weren't easy to get to. I um, was in Nevada, but I would always go to the L.A. ones. I think I went to San Jose once. And I would just... Um, <laughs> they got to know my face, I think, over many years. I really, it was my yearly journey. I would right. save up to go to those conventions. In hindsight, I wish I had a lot more pictures and had more cameras at the time. And I did have one year where almost all of my uh, photos did not develop. You know, these were the years of bad developing and bad cheap cameras. And like my meeting with Dario Argento is... I have no pictures of it. And same with, you know, Peter Jackson and the mid 90s. So back when they were accessible <laughs> in that way. Right. Uh, what I do love, though, is, you know, we've talked a little bit about this trajectory of you initially being terrified of a film that kind of put you on on this path. And then, you know, by the time you're a teenager, you're in the world of zines. You're creating something that's sort of in an honor and worship of, of these these films. But then you're also working as a film projectionist as well at that time. And it's so like your whole world is sort of like based around the altar of cinema. You know, you get to travel around uh, and interview people. I, you know, I, I, it probably doesn't seem like it to you because it was just something you were doing. But for so many people who want to connect with this world, you were really kind of doing something awesome as a teenager that not a lot of people get to do. Yeah, I, I, I look back and I consider myself lucky uh, just the positions I was at to be a teenage projectionist <laughs> right. at a movie theater, which is when I started collecting 35 millimeter um, horror film trailers, of which I have an enormous collection of, because I was a projectionist for many years, yeah, right. um, finding old trailers for the original prom night or Toby Hooper's horror hotel, you know, in the box lurking and, you know, in the back corner of a projection booth. And my first film that I was able to build to build up and project was Elvira's mistress of the dark. Oh my gosh. And so many great films that came after uh, Pumpkinhead and just so many great films. So I, I, I do, I was lucky and I would, get to from that position of the booth right. get to watch you know my favorite scenes and my favorite horror films again and again and again and i would see how audiences reacted to all these films and what got the best reaction so studying audience reaction was a big thing of what i was doing sometimes i that was more interesting than what was on the screen or watching trailers again and again and getting the rhythm of the editing and the cutting of them and the films themselves, which helped develop my editing chops right. over the years, that obsessive attention paid to edits. What I was going to ask you, you know, sitting there in the booth watching these movies and, and getting to study audience reactions and study the films that had to have prepared you to become a filmmaker. And you said like it, it helped it, uh, improve your chops as an editor. Uh, so, I mean, obviously you your career trajectory kept moving forward. At what point did you, you know, emerge from the world of, of uh, journalism and doing your own zines and, you know, being a, t a teenage project. I love that. I was a teenage projectionist. <laughs> uh, 
when, after sitting in the booth for all this time, seeing these classic movies and studying the film, studying the audience, uh, did you finally decide that you were going to make a movie of your own? Yeah, I knew that from from early from, on. from very early on. Yeah. And but, I started by writing my screenplays in the projection booths. <laughs> and I would take I would always have a typewriter in the projection booths to oh, type wow. while the movies were going. I guess this would be before the laptop era so. <laughs> or a notebook, which right. I actually still carry around. Uh, so, yeah, I was immediately writing screenplays from 18. I wrote my first feature when I was 18 and basically wrote one or two features a year every year since, which is to say I've got many dozens of of scripts and I learned, you know, how to get better at it. And, but it took many years before I finally decided to direct a short film to actually put one in production. Not that I wasn't looking for agents or looking for sales. I always was, but it was easier to, for me to many years develop storytelling by writing features. And it was difficult to come up with an idea for a short that would inspire me. So I had to go the long, I kind of went a long way around and I'm actually doing the same thing with books now because I'm now finishing my third novel and it's a huge epic, but I haven't written any short stories and that's next. A short story collection will be next, but I had to do a bunch of longer works before I could actually tackle a shorter one. No, I think that's really great that you bring it up. And I don't think I've ever gotten a chance to talk to a guest about this before, but like from a writer's perspective, I do think that there is this interesting misnomer and you sort of just spoke to this, uh, or like misheld belief that, um, because something is shorter, it's easier. Uh, and, uh, you know, the idea that, you know, someone's just like, well, I'll just write a short story as opposed to a novel. I'll make a short film because that will help me prepare for my feature. And I don't think what people realize uh, is that it's technically a harder task in a way because you have less time to connect with your audience. You have less time to establish your characters and establish your world. And whereas in a feature film or a novel, you can definitely meander if you so choose any time lost in a short film is time lost period because you don't have time and so i think there's something really interesting and uh delicious about the fact that you spent years kind of preparing yourself to make a short by writing feature scripts because it is a lot more concentrated and it has to be Uh, it has to be well-crafted. And I think that, you know, you mentioned your love of Stephen King, and uh, I I think that Stephen King is one of the great American short story writers. We don't have a lot of people who do short stories very well, but I think that he is a definitive example of someone who's so good at what he does. He makes it look easier than it actually is because I think that, you know, some of those short stories of his are just as brilliant in some cases more so than some of his novels because there's a resonance. Uh, And I think that's just so interesting that you, you spoke to that and like, I mean, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but do you, do you really find that short form does require so much more curation in a, in a way? It's, it's a different kind of focus and um, it just took me a long time to, to get to that. But then I kind of learned that too and right then kind of went on a string 
of years where I was doing a lot of shorts. You did make a lot of shorts. There's uh, and it, they seem to happen in relatively quick succession. Uh, it probably didn't feel like it at the time, but if you look at the release dates, you had like a string of a number of them within the middle of, of the decade. Yeah, I was working on multiple ones at the same time. Uh, there was a time where I was filming a few of them at the same time and going back and forth. If an actor fell out on one of them, I would jump to the other production. And uh, so I did that for a while. Uh, most of that was all done in Seattle mm -hmm. when I lived up in Seattle. But then I kind of felt I had reached kind of a limit of what I could do there. And I really wanted to make the move to Los Angeles, which I always knew was coming. It just took me a lot longer to get here. But I was in Seattle for a long time and it was a great time. And I'm glad that it ended so productive film wise. But Seattle wasn't exactly the most um, supportive place for horror filmmakers. Mm -hmm. Not that you need to come from a place that is. Right. But I just kind of felt like I had reached a ceiling there. And my years there were before uh, Crypticon had shown up. Now there is much more of a horror, I think, community there. Yeah. Right. But back then I really felt like kind of an outsider and a punk on the fringes and I never felt completely welcomed right by the um the local film community although luckily I had a lot of great um connection and screenings with the Seattle Lesbian and Gay Film Festival yeah, and this is a great time to bring it up uh, in that you had just mentioned that you had felt like an outsider and you were on the fringes. And we talked a little bit about as a teenager, you're kind of foot in these different sort of worlds that the mainstream would consider counterculture or underground or whatever. Uh, and uh, you... Uh, have you know i want to talk about kind of the the the, the queerness of, of of it all you know the queerness <laughs> yeah. of it all uh as as someone who ex exists in the lgbtq spectrum do you feel your connection to horror is in some way related to that the the otherness of of of, of being a gay person or do you also find that uh there is just you know, a, a more of a connection for for queer people to horror because of that or no? I didn't come into it from that viewpoint because right. I was because um, I came out late. So I was into horror for many years before I was um, out. But then I could look back and see connections that I had not caught before. So in hindsight, I can see where it kind of developed and where the paths crossed mm -hmm. and you know, epic moments that, you know, really helped. Um, being a fan of Clive Barker um, helped when Clive came out and Fangoria, that helped. Right. Um, so there were definitely, I was aware of what was going on and keeping up with them. But for me, it kind of just took a little longer. And with my short films, even, I can look at all of them and see queer sensibilities to a degree, but really only two of them kind of qualify. Right. Which makes it kind of surprising that my shorts did play in so many um, queer film festivals. Um, Outfest and the Seattle Lesbian and Gay Film Festival and New Fest in New York and in Canada. And like, so I was 
luckily embraced. Even some of the shorts that didn't have that element still got chosen. So I was kind of surprised and was glad that I was welcomed into that. Now, at the same time, I will mention, and this is just an interesting thing, uh, a tease to what I want to do in the future, which is I would love to write a book about queer um, horror film theory from a modern standpoint. Because there's one uh, book out there that is the one that everybody knows and has read Monsters in the Closet. And I, the author's name is escaping me. But he spoke at Outfest, I believe, in 2004. They had a kind of a horror bend program that year. I where remember they, that, uh, yeah. Did multiple queer horror um panels and events and they had that author speak and do a whole presentation about his book and i've read that book a few times and i have so many problems with it oh that's interesting with his theories and i feel they're outdated and i feel he's very knowledgeable in classic horror but once he reaches the modern age of horror he falls back on almost Siskel and Ebert style criticisms of the genre that they had at the time of the early 80s when horror films became more graphic. And suddenly that author dismissed almost all modern horror and only cherry picking a few select films that would hold up his theory of the queer monster. And he completely refused to look at so much of the genre, including the slasher era, where we start seeing so many queer movements with the final girls and final boys who could be coded either gender and films like Just Before Dawn, which plays such a slippery gender slope on what's expected of your gender. And there's and these final girls who act masculine, who act like closeted lesbians who have names that could be male or female. There's so much development and identification that came later. If that author grew up being told that the queer was the monster and he believed it, I grew up seeing the queer as the hero, as the survivor, as the outcast who's not like the friends who are, you know, going up, you know, Bob and Linda to the bedroom to screw and Laurie's like, oh, I can't get a date. No, there's so much more going on in modern horror with uh, queer presence and evolution that the book Monsters in the Closet not only doesn't touch on, it kind of poo-poos it and kind of brushes it away as not even worthy of study. So someday I would love to t tackle a book like that. I think that you should, because I think that it's needed, uh, you know, because one of the things that we talk about so frequently on the show is how different interpretations uh, arise based on what's going on societally speaking. And film criticism has to evolve just like art has to evolve. And yes, there is a lens by which you look at the horror movies of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and you see queer coding in a certain way. But then, you know, it's going to change because social attitudes towards queer people change. And so, you know, with we've talked about it to some degree before with the, the rise of the AIDS crisis in the 80s and all of a sudden there's this instituted unspoken rule in horror movies that if you have sex you die well where do you think that parallel can be drawn uh, you know and so I think that 
it does fall upon the shoulders of people who are passionate about these things like yourself to look at it and say, this is art and there is a purpose. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, Monsters in the Closet definitely served its purpose. I, you know, I would not in any way besmirch that work, but I think that what happens is with different times, we need different takes as well. And um, I think it's so important because our genre, as you well know, frequently gets dismissed uh the old joke is it's you know it's a dirty word it's just like porn or whatever but it's because i think that sometimes horror scares people but not in the way that we traditionally think so i think that horror when done right can be the mirror by which you reflect things going on in society that we otherwise couldn't say. Like that's when genre used as a mechanism is so very important. And then all of a sudden that monster does mean something more. The idea that it follows as a movie about a sexually transmitted disease. Like, yeah, we know like that's look, look beneath. Sometimes the monster isn't always the monster. Sometimes, sometimes there's a lot more going on. Oh, my. Anyway, uh, I did want to talk a little bit about because you mentioned some of the content of your shorts. Uh, some delved into queer territory, some didn't. But what I do think is very interesting is if you look across the range of the shorts that you've made uh, for someone who was very, uh, you know, deferential to the lost lives of the counselors of Camp Crystal Lake. And, and uh, you know, the, what I like about your sensibilities is that you do have a tendency with your work to go into button pushing territory. Like you have never really um, shied away from things that like beyond just the realm of horror would maybe necessarily like an audience would be like, oh, well, this is a boundary push or, you know, some the, the a buzzword of today is like, maybe this is problematic for somebody or whatever. But what I like is you'll take us to the gate and say, here's what, what it is. And I'm going to kind of put it in your face and you have to deal with it. And you, know, you pervula, you panty kill, you have a kill, the killer crap, crapper, you know, the idea that um, you don't just do horror, you take horror kind of like, to a foregone conclusion of a little bit more extreme. Was that a decision early on that like, if I'm going to do this, I'm definitely not going to just like put my foot in the water. I'm going to jump right in and, and really do you, do you intend to like push an envelope or is that just, I don't, I don't even know if I consciously do it. <laughs> I'm just so wired to do it. Mm -hmm. And if I look at the things that I like, I'm not one for, well, I, Okay, I should say I like all kinds of horror, right. um, even the kinds that I don't necessarily delve in. I like the the really gruesome films. I love the very subtle films. I don't care what the rating is if it's right for the story. Right. Um, so I can appreciate the classics, the newer things. So it's, but personally, my own interest, my favorite stuff, really delivers. Right. I like the the films that go there, that go the extra mile to terrify you, that aren't afraid to show you what is lurking in the closet or under the bed, that aren't afraid to show you what they do. Um, and I think that's just because I was so weaned on um, people like Stephen King or Clive Barker, and they, they don't hold back. They deliver. 
and I always want to deliver. Right. And sometimes that means going a little extra. And with the short films, that's very easy. And I also have an interest in cult cinema. Right. And, you know, the works of extreme filmmakers like John Waters or Bruce LaBruce. And I love to see audiences that are goaded into extreme reactions. That's also fascinating to right. observe in an audience and to experience as an audience when you see something so transgressive that either everybody screams or everybody laughs or you can hear a pin drop <laughs> or people get up and they walk out, which I call a standing ovation. So I, I like reaction. I, I like to get reaction. So maybe that's why they go there. I definitely can see some seeds of John Waters influence in your work. Uh, yeah, because I th and when you said you, you, uh, how some of your things played at queer film festivals, even if it wasn't inherently queer, I think sometimes there's a queer sensibility that doesn't necessarily always have to do with queer characters. Like when you watch some of the John Waters films, they're not never they're rarely actually about actual queer people. But there's something so like, I mean, Divine is supposed to be playing a, a cis woman, but the, just like the sheer idea of Divine and Edie, like, you know, being housewives, you know, in polyester, that movie's like hella gay, like, even though there's really no gay content. And I think that, like, queer critics can see queer sensibility even if it's not necessarily about a queer person and uh in that way i look at your your oeuvre of shorts and i'm like all right yeah i can see the john waters of it all but still definitively you like but i, I, I get what you mean like by bringing that uh that button pushing uh the transgressive uh element it's not even necessarily that you're meaning to push buttons but it's just the foregone conclusion of the art you're trying to make yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about a particular character of yours from a short film uh, who has sort of uh, lived off of the screen and has gone on to do some other things. Tell me about Pervula. Yeah, Pervula. That's my alter ego, I think. <laughs> uh, I directed that film in 2001, and I starred as the title character, Pervula, and I still have that costume. And I still wear it on occasion, and I like to become that character. I mainly, uh, as a DJ now, uh, which I've been doing a lot more of lately, I like to bring that character out. I use the name. I don't always dress in that outfit. Right. But the sensibility of the character is always there because I always dress up. I always do something crazy. Um, and Pervula, like all of my villains and my short films, they all pose right. they prance they pose they're stylized and i like to do that on occasion <laughs> so i keep him alive i have written a sequel to it that i've wanted to do for many years pervula number two but i really wouldn't want to do it the same way which is to say without a budget i would love to have a real budget for it right. but Am I going to really secure a real budget for another X-rated short film that would run about 20 minutes? Oh, God, I would love I would love it if it happened. But I also wrote it to be with um, a major actress instead of an unknown right. as the co-lead. So can I get that actress and get a budget? We'll see. I'll never write off Pervula number two. Well, fingers crossed. Now, uh, before we talk a little bit about the DJing, uh, since you embody the character of Pervula, and this is a question that I like to ask guests who uh, 
take on alternate identities sometimes, whether it's sometimes, sometimes it's drag queens, sometimes it's different people in the horror field. Usually when we create a stage persona, of course it's rooted to uh, something of, of our own self, but like it's a heightened sense. Like you said, this is a heightened uh, prancing, you know, how is Pervula different from Armando? In, in in your mind. <laughs> I don't know if he is different. <laughs> and I can really see where he came from because prior to Pervula rising from the tomb in 2001, I had been, you know, after I turned 21, I got very involved in the club scene, the uh, goth industrial scene, which is always a fetish type scene. Right. And I worked in a fetish store in Seattle. And so I was around very adult content and material for many years it was my job and it was in the entertainment you know you know i it's not lost on me that when i started reading stephen king when i was 12 years old that i was reading material written for adults right. and in cujo those dirty bits really stood out and i would go back to those again and i would know oh i'm reading something that's beyond my age level but i can handle it i'll learn right. so <laughs> so i i can see where pervula just naturally came out of the environments that I found myself in and the cinema that I tended to like the most. I love that. So because you were part of the, the fetish scene in Seattle, uh, was that sort of, and I'm just making a leap, which of course you can tell me if I'm totally wrong, because I've, I've heard you DJ sets before. You definitely have a specific kind of like music you go towards. Where Was that curated sort of like born from that scene that the music that you like to to incorporate into sets or to a degree to a degree i was already into punk rock and heavy metal mm -hmm. and every permutation of metal and rock prior to discovering the club scene so but then when i got into that then i simply added the goth bands even more but right. granted they, i was still listening to some of them in the 80s as well um you know, Susie and the Banshees and stuff. But I learned a lot more bands in the early 90s when I started going to those clubs and really gravitated toward that darker, heavier sound. But when I DJ as DJ Pervula, I mix it all. Right. So I love to get the horror punk in there and the heavy metal, but mix it with the goth and industrial and uh, sounds. What I like about your DJ persona and your your work doing that is that I don't really know of anyone who exists in the genre space who uh, is, you know, a writer, a filmmaker, but also like a DJ that is sort of like, you know, I kind of think of you as the preeminent like horror event DJ. Like if there's something going like I've seen you do uh, things at Shriekfest and those parties are always great. It's just the idea that like you you have this ability to take the um, the onus and atmosphere of what you love and pr apply it to each of your arts that you do. And I think that's really cool because, you know, there are DJs, but there aren't many horror DJs. You may be the horror DJ. The, the, I think there are many out there, but well, I'm... Uh, it's my, show, in my so own little. <laughs> I'm in my own little circle of what I'm what I'm doing. It's, it's very ambitious and elaborate right. and yes. the costumes that I make, um, are sometimes pretty ridiculous and I'll play blind sometimes because I have 
a face hugger attached over my face and I literally cannot see through it. But I incorporate the horror props and elements and special effects um, because I do low grade special effects, too, for my films and other films. So I want to incorporate special effects into my DJ sets, too. Yeah, and I think maybe that's the thing I undersold to our audience. Like, when you see Armando up DJ Pervula performing at these events, it you know, it's not just a DJ at a booth spinning records. Like, you'll look over, and all of a sudden, he's dressed as Jason Voorhees. And then you're like, oh, my God. And then, like, 10 minutes later, you've got a knife in your forehead in a completely different outfit. And <laughs> it's amazing. It's just so much fun to to, to go see. And uh, it's I'm always torn when I go to these parties at film festivals that you're DJing at where I'm like, I want to dance, but I also kind of just want to watch him because I want to see what he's going to do next. <laughs> Feel free to dance. I'll, I'll chop you up on the dance floor. <laughs> um, so from the world of music to the world of words, you uh, mentioned a little bit earlier that you have uh, written uh, two novels and had just completed your third. And close to completing, close to completing your third. Um, tell me a little bit about, like you said, we've talked off and on throughout this whole episode about your, your uh, connection to the world of writing. But a novel is a very specific endeavor to embark upon no one would ever say writing a book is easy uh but you know you took your love of horror and you have started writing books what was the decision to start writing novels as opposed to keep doing screenplays i know you're doing both but like i always wanted to write novels but i didn't feel confident enough to and i had to work at writing screenplays and just work in the genre until the point where just one day it clicked and I decided it's time. Right. And in hindsight, I kind of wish I had started earlier. But, you know, you can't I'm not going to second guess the journey because now that I've started writing novels, it's a constant thing. Right. And I'm never going to stop. So I'm going to constantly push myself to get them out and explore different um, challenge myself with them. Like the one I'm finishing up now is been a challenge i've learned a lot and i'm pushing myself very hard and uh, it's taken a long time uh because i'm writing my first epic mm-hmm. which is many many years of commitment to to do and for a series that will continue later so i'm constantly pushing myself and i'm going to push myself to do short fiction collection next and then a smaller novel before i do a part three and my the trilogy that i've been working on um so I, I, I'm not going to give it up. I'm going to keep, right. keep going at it, along with the films. But my hope is that there will be increased film and book activity at the same time. So I, I'm working toward all, toward all of it. Fingers crossed. Now, I, I, I'm curious, when you have the seed of an idea, what, do you, what makes the difference to, like, oh, this is a film idea or this is a book idea? Like, how, like what, how do you choose between those I see them as both, Yeah. to be honest. I actually have screenplays written for my first two novels and for the third one mm-hmm. already. So right now, I don't see myself doing a book that I'm not going to want to adapt into a film myself. Smart. So I, I'm very aware that I'm going to try and put these books into other formats. So it's a big commitment not that every script i write is going to have you know a novel for it or vice versa oh but i'll I'll keep at it it's um 
Well, you know, that's the one thing I really like about you is you definitely keep plates spinning. You are always uh, scheming something that, as of thus far, it seems like you you produce, you make things happen. And I like that about you. Uh, and, you know, over the course of this episode, we've talked a little bit about, you know, your your writing, your, your history, uh, making shorts, uh, writing books. And uh, we had mentioned how you, uh, as a teenager, worked in a movie theater one of the things before we head off into the night I want to discuss is sort of the cyclical nature of life and how one of the great things you're doing here in the city of Los Angeles right now is hosting midnight movies at the New Art. Uh, or talk to me a little bit about that whole gig. And did I, did I? Oh, yeah. No, that's I'm a, a proud midnight movie host and yeah. I can look at the history and um, certainly I have to give thanks to Peaches Christ and uh, uh, her series in San Francisco that was so influential, the Midnight Mass, I believe, yeah. uh, series, which I never got to go to one, but, you know, they're so legendary, and I love to be able to create something along those lines, which is to say host movies that mean a lot to me, uh, bring guests that... Um, really fascinate me and just resurrect these movies for a midnight audience and not just make it a screening, but make it a scene, right. a scene that you want to go be a part of and experience. Um, you know, it's a way to get people out. And, you know, I guess not much different from getting them to a club and wanting to, you know, give them a memorable experience because I often host these movies in full costume with special effects and you know so i bring the same sensibility to a movie screening that i would to i guess any of my other appearances right i was gonna say that's sort of the thing that uh your your hosting shares in common with uh you know seeing you dj is it's not just you standing there you bring a level of theatricality to it that I think is really great and um what I really love is it shows how passionate you are about the films you program because I can see it like you know whenever I see you in person or ever I see your posts online it's not just like oh come to the new art we're screening this you're just like you have like a whole like thing where you know that it's hyped up in the right way I know that you're excited about it you dig out old articles you find clippings it it really does feel like you are curating a community, which I think is very important because we sort of are losing that in, in the modern era where it's so easy to just watch whatever on a digital platform. What makes a movie special? And I think uh, for horror fans and, and, and cult fans, you know, the word cult really is all about a communal experience. And it's we need people who are keeping that community alive. And thanks to people like you who are finding ways to do it. It's it's important. I think it's so important. Uh, so thank you for that. It's very rewarding to do. It is kind of, like you said, going full circle and creating the movie going experience from another aspect. Right. You know, I was in the booth before. Not that I still don't project 35 millimeter because I still can and do. But there's a lot more to do in presenting a film. And it's it's a joy. It's a joy to revisit these. Sometimes it's part of the fun is seeing something that I missed in its initial run because I was so messed up over Friday the 13th <laughs> that I was too terrified to go see Prom Night when it was first released. Right. But, you know, now I have I can rectify that. 
What's a movie that you haven't had the opportunity to screen yet that's like on your wish list? What's the dream movie that you don't know that if if you could have any movie? I'm so lucky that lately I've been getting to pro getting so many of my dream movies programmed. It's really difficult to say. And I might pick something that is so that would be something that would thrill me. And I'm sure like one or two other people might show up. <laughs> to watch it with me but it would be such a thrill for me and there are some holy grail films okay this is ridiculous but i'll, I'll tell you what yeah. one of my main holy grail films is lay it on me west cravens the hills have eyes part two wow okay i mean you want to talk about a deep cut in, in terms of uh horror screening i don't think i've ever seen anyone screen it but it's not necessarily the most beloved film i think you would agree but it's not but it's my favorite craven film I love that. So what is far it? as it makes me happy. It makes me so happy when I watch it. Do you have a reason or is it just like a personal connection? Part of it is it was one of those films I discovered back when I might during that first year interest in horror as I was getting into it. And you seeing a nightmare on Elm Street in the theater. The original was another, you know, transformative experience. And I didn't have that experience with The Hills Have Eyes Part Two. Right. But it just holds a nostalgia and a joy for me. And I actually think that the movie could easily be dissected. I, I would probably love to do a book um, about Wes Craven's films and dissecting the themes in those. And looking at the themes of Wes Craven that have followed him through his career, he did a number of very interesting things in Hills 2. And a lot of firsts in Hills 2 of things that then became staples of his later films. So it's so easily dismissed by almost everybody and everybody calls it his worst film. But well, it brings me such joy. And to see it in a theater on a 35 print would be incredible, especially since every version that's out there now is crummy. Hmm. Even the most recent DVD Blu-ray release actually was far worse than the full screen image release that came before it because they darkened it to the point where a third of the film is a black screen mm. and I can't even watch that version. I would love to see the film on 35 to see those dark scenes that nobody has gotten right in uh, in the following eras. Well, if you are out there and you have a 35 millimeter print of The Hills Have Eyes 2, please make this happen for Armando and for horror fans who deserve it. Because, you know, the joy about this genre, I think, is that we all have that movie that maybe isn't loved by everyone, but it means something to us. And I think that's what horror should be about. It's that that personal entry point. I'm a huge fan of the Killer Tomato franchise. I say franchise, <laughs> not just the first movie. I've seen all four movies multiple times. I love them all. No one's going to be beating down the door to screen Killer Tomatoes Eat France. But I'll tell you what, I would be there in a heartbeat if someone showed it. So I hope you get your Hills Have Eyes Part 2 screening. Uh, and I would love to see that happen, honestly. Um, and what I like, you know, obviously Wes Craven, uh, in, in terms of a retrospective, it's, it's well needed. He did tend to do that thing where he would test stuff out in films uh, 
that weren't the bigger films and then reuse them later. Like I was rewatching Deadly Blessing the other day and the scene with the snake in the bathtub. I'm like, this is the this is Freddie in the bathtub. He just he just redid this. Oh, he and did. I a, love him. He for did that it. a lot. <laughs> you can see so many familiar things happen in his movies. Look at how many times um, grown men get set on fire and flail around like so many things come back in his films again and again images and situations the boyfriend crawling up to the girl girlfriend's window which i believe he did the first time in the hills have eyes part two wow so there's so much and not only a 35 print of that but if anybody has a copy of wes craven's rare super rare porn film yeah what was the fireworks woman what I, was the name he directed under? It's like Abe something. I don't remember his pseudonym on that, but I read a very detailed description of it, and it seems like it's full of all of his familiar obsessions. It actually sounds like a Wes Craven film. I love that. You know what? Honestly, there is a history of that era when it wasn't so much looked down upon uh, of of filmmakers cutting their teeth on adult films. And I've seen a lot of, of adult films and pornos that were directed by people who ended up going on to make horror movies. Uh, there's this great one, High Rise, that Danny Steinman, who directed The Unseen in Friday the 13th Part 5, it's this, uh, this porn film that's a musical, and it's got original musical numbers in it, and it's so bizarre. Wow. And I've, if ever, you know, Danny Steinman ranked to get a, uh, a Danny Steinman retrospective, I would be the person who's like, you guys have to screen High Rise. <laughs> when else are you going to see, like, an X-rated musical where a woman has to have sex with everybody in the building all the way up to the High Rise? <laughs> Uh, no wonder he got the job on A New Beginning. I know. It definitely has a porny feel to it. Totally. <laughs> yeah. you, could, you could sense it. Yeah. There's, uh, there's some sleaze there. But I, you know what? Honestly, I like it for that reason. I am unapologetic. Oh, uh, you know, Pervula would like it. Well, and if Pervula likes it, I feel like I would probably follow suit. Um, what is next in your world? What are you working on now beyond your novel? Do you have anything else in? Well, I do hope to get the novel out by the end of the year. We'll see if that happens. It's called Turkey Kitchen, and it's the sequel to Turkey Day. So I am doing a whole holiday horror franchise in novel form, and then hopefully, you know, the films will follow. Those are definitely dream projects of mine. Um, so I'm very committed to the the Thanksgiving franchise, my Thanksgiving franchise. But I'm working on and developing a number of feature film projects. Um, a lot of them I can't talk about, mm-hmm. but I can mention uh, one of the main ones called The Cutters that I would direct. And I have a couple um, great uh, actors involved. Um, I wrote it for Leslie Donaldson to uh, be the lead. And she's a Canadian scream queen who I've long admired. That's right. And she's doing work again. And I would love to see her in this. And Ken Foray is also um, currently attached uh, to appear in it. Excellent. And it's kind of a, a spinoff piece to my novel, Hoarder. It, the character of Mrs. Cutter has a chapter in the book, Hoarder. So right. I'm kind of crossing the universe and think the Cutters would be a good stepping stone to a feature of Hoarder. So I'm, you know, I, I have crossed my universes in many of many of my films so the cutters is definitely um coming on the horizon and i've long been developing my short film mime after midnight into a feature film franchise and i had a major horror 
talent involved in it for many years who was going to uh, co-write it and direct it. But that didn't happen. And so it's more in my uh, more in my lap again. So I'm looking for other collaborators who would want to or see the potential of turning a mime after midnight into a series, because I think I mean, it was definitely created to be the launch of a new slasher slasher villain you know another slasher villain that poses right (laughs) that's what he does he poses and kills so nothing queer about that i you know who doesn't love to strike a pose before causing some trouble it's literally everything i live for um before we go i do always like to ask guests and especially someone who's so engaged with the world of uh movie theaters and movies as you are what have you seen lately that just has blown your socks off? What are you, what are you loving movie-wise? Oh, gosh. A uh, few films that I saw recently that really impressed me. Uh, the Strangers, Pray at Night. Yeah. The Strangers sequel knocked my socks off. I was lucky to see it in a theater by myself the first time. On opening week. Totally criminal. But... I was not a fan of the original Strangers in the least. That's interesting. I didn't like it at all. So I went in with some reservation, but this one felt as wonderful. It had the same flavor as Friday the 13th Part 2 and Halloween 2 and Scream 2. It felt like a genuine slasher horror sequel that delivered. I was giddy and totally terrified that that pushed my buttons I love that. and then another recent film that really had an effect on me is one that you saw recently the misandrists by bruce LeBruce. and i've long been a bruce LeBruce fan i've been watching his queer core films in cinemas since the mid 90s with super eight and a half i saw that multiple times in a theater and would take all my boyfriends to go see it you gotta come see this thing it's the most <laughs> crazy thing And I did the same with Hustler White. So the misandrist seems like an evolution for him. It's a great companion piece to my favorite film of his, The Raspberry Reich. But I think there's a beauty to the misandrist that really affects me on a fundamental level. The movie actually makes me cry. It makes me weep with joy. And I've noticed the more I see it, the more that I have that it has that effect on me. So that's I think Bruce LeBruce did some amazing things in that movie. Uh, you know, I really liked it as well. I love that Bruce always pushes uh, boundaries and he can use something transgressive uh, and and some may say X rated to make a political statement. Uh I've always been a fan of his and I, what I really think is I always call him the last great piss off your parents filmmaker <laughs> because we don't have many people who kind of feel like they're making forbidden art in, in that way. Yes. Uh, but I, yeah, I really liked it and I totally get where you're coming from. And I thought the interview that you did with him at, after the screening at the new art, because again, tying it all together, uh, he came uh, and, and spoke with you about the yes. film and that was really just, it gave such insight and uh, to see you both up there together, fans of transgressive cinema, artists of transgressive cinema. That's really cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I have been following him for a long time. I remember seeing him meet John Waters at Newfest in 2004 
during the Raspberry Reich premiere. And I remember John Waters rushing up to <laughs> talk to him afterwards all excitedly like a fanboy. And I thought, this is great. And now I've gotten to share a stage with Bruce and pick his brain, which is just an amazing thing. And of course, I had so many questions that even two nights of Q&As was not enough. I wanted to get even more. I like that you used his uh, movie as, a, as, as something that you would take your boyfriends to go see, because honestly, um, really, Bruce LeBruce film should be the litmus for people you're dating. <laughs> you sit down and you make your, your significant other watch a Bruce LeBruce film, and if they can hang, then that's a cool person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Armando, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me, well... At the New Art or a uh, goth nightclub near you, I do have a few big DJ Pervula events I can let you know now. Please. Um, always, I do the Shriekfest opening night party, and that's going to be, I believe, this year on Thursday, October 4th. It's my biggest show of the year every year. Mm -hmm. It's five to six hours of nonstop playing and special effects and costume changes and horror rock and mixes. All horror. I spend all year working on that night. And it so is something to see. I have been before. Uh, although I'm an old man, uh, while he'll be there for five to six hours, I definitely will creep in for like <laughs> two and then I get sleepy. <laughs> so that's always on my um, agenda as well as the Saturday night. I also DJ with Batcave, um, a local um, club promoter, and we're doing the Saints and Sinners night at the Medusa Lounge, which is always fun and very um, creepy, religious, fetish themed. And the Bondage Ball on July 3rd at the Globe Theater uh, downtown. Right. I'll be with Batcave there as well in another creepy fetish costume. So uh, you can find me live there or just follow the, the New Art Midnight series of which um, we have some major stuff coming up. Uh, Jason Lives on 35mm with uh, Tom McLaughlin. We'll be there next month on Friday the 13th. I get to uh, do an interview with him. The next Shriekfest presents is Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes, the Yay. original, on 4K restoration on September 7th. I know we'll have uh, Susie Lanier Bramlett, who was uh, Brenda in the film, will be there, but we'll probably have other guests as well. Excellent. Um, you can go to Amazon uh, for my books, uh, Hoarder and Turkey Day, but they also have their own website, so uh, HoarderNovel.com or TurkeyDayNovel.com. Gives you the selling links, gives you behind the scenes information on the books. I have a YouTube page and a Vimeo page. Uh, look for Eek Entertainment Productions on, uh, on YouTube. The Eek Entertainment website uh, will link you to my short films. A lot of information on my short films and my blog. I have a blog. <laughs> so You are just out there in the world. Yeah, I, I, yeah look anywhere for it and you'll see Pervula out there somewhere. Well... Please go and find this guy out in the world, buy his books, watch his films. If you're in Los Angeles, go to the New Art, see some movies, check out his DJ sets at all of those places he just said. Those are all some killer venues. If you're a horror fan or a music fan or a goth kid, whatever, I think that you're going to love it. Uh, Armando, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I love this show. Thank you. Well, this has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Good luck.